Let's pray. Fathers, we have come this morning and we have heard your word read to us. We've sung praises to you. We've brought offerings to you. We've spoken to you in prayer. And I pray now, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would come and speak to us through the power of your word, through the preaching of your word, that you have anointed, not because of anything in me, but because you have promised that your word will not return void. So would you come and, Holy Spirit, use your word like a scalpel upon our hearts, that our, the eyes of our hearts would be open to behold your wonders and your glory, the riches of who you are, and all that you are doing, that we would have your vision for this earth. Come and be our teacher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Kids, let me start with a question for you guys this morning. Have you ever set out to do something in life? Maybe it's to build something or to make something. Maybe it's to be a part of a, of a sports team or some adventure in your life. You set out on this adventure and you start out with a lot of excitement Uh, a lot of joy about what's ahead, and then you get into it, and you realize, wow, this is a whole lot harder than I thought. Have you ever in that place begun to think to yourself, now, why did I do this? Why why was it I got myself into this situation? Why was it I thought it was a good idea to try to build this or to be a part of this? You ever had that experience in your life? I've shared the story a number of times about my own life of when Ashley and I moved to Orlando and bought a condo in Orlando, and we, as we were coming down, and this was just before the, uh, the bubble burst in the housing market, which it was really bad in Orlando, but this was before anybody knew anything about that. At this point, it was, you got to get in. You got to buy something down here. So we're, here we are, newly married. We, go, we moved down to Orlando, and we decide that we're going to buy a condo, and we're going to remodel it. Now, not because I've ever remodeled anything. Not because I've ever built anything but maybe a small doghouse that didn't have straight edges at all. Not because I had any skill, but because I had watched a lot of HGTV. And that's how it works. You watch yourself a little HGTV, you can build anything, right? You can build a house from scratch. So I was hopped up on a lot of HGTV, and so I'm thinking, I got this thing. You know, I've never hung a single sheet of drywall, but it couldn't be that hard, right? I ought to be able to do this. I've never installed cabinets, but oh, we'll figure it out as we get into it. This was actually before, you know, the, all the do-it-yourself stuff. Well, now you just look at YouTube, and you really can build anything, or at least you think. So here we are, we, we buy this condo, We tear all this stuff out. You know, we're pulling out old cabinets. We're pulling down drywall. You know, I decide, hey, don't like that wall there. I take that wall out. I'm sitting there after the demo phase. (laughs) Ashley's at work. Ashley worked at our church to put me through seminary. And I'm sitting there by myself in the condo. There's debris everywhere. And I'm overwhelmed. And I'm saying to myself, why on this earth did I do this? Why did I get into this? I had no idea what I was getting into, but what, why, did, why was this a good idea? And you know what had to happen? At that point, it was really hard to think about backing out. I was like, how do we sell this thing like this? 
But here's what had to happen for us to be able to take it from this point where it was like so overwhelming to a place where we could live in it, where it could be something we were proud about. We had to recapture a sense of vision. We had to recapture that why at the very beginning. You know, it's what you got to have whenever you start off on any great adventure or building anything. you got to have a picture of the end. you got to have a picture of this, this is what's going to make it worth it because I can see the end. I can see what it's going to turn out like. I can see what it's going to be like. And that vision, if it's big enough, can carry you through all the hard times. It can carry you through to the end, to seeing it to the end. You know, one of the hard things about the Christian life is that it is so easy, in fact, to lose our sense of why. That is, to lose our sense of purpose, to lose a, a sense of the big picture, to lose our vision of what would it, wait a minute, why did I do this? Why did I think this was a good idea? Why is it that I'm choosing to follow Jesus and it's costing me things in my life? Now, what... What was that vision again? It's so easy to lose sight of that, to lose sight of the the larger story that we're a part of when we become a Christian. Here's what happens whenever you lose the why of the Christian life. You lose a sense of vision. You reduce the Christian life just down to you. It just becomes about you. It becomes about maximizing personal happiness. So Christianity is a way to feel better or for things to go well in my life, or for God to bless me, or it, it, it becomes focused on us. It's reduced down. And Christianity was never meant to be about us. We were never intended to live for a kingdom of one. But it's so easy to get in that place. We've been in our vision series where we're talking about our why as a church. Why do we exist? Why has God called us to be in Dade County? Why has he breathed this church into life? Why has he put us here? So we're getting at our sense of vision, and here's what we're convinced of. We're we're convinced that God has put us in Dade County for a purpose. It's not an accident. It's on purpose. And he has called us to be a church in Dade County for the good of Dade County. We don't exist just for ourselves. We exist for the good of those in our community. We exist for the good of our non-members, as we like to say at Grace Community. So here's what we'll see in our passage. We're going to see, this is a very familiar passage, but hopefully we'll see this with fresh eyes, and we're going to see the vision that compelled Jesus in his life. This was Jesus' dream. The dream that guided him throughout his life and took him all the way to the cross and through the cross into resurrection. And we're going to see the vision that he now, as his followers, calls us to. So let's look at the passage together. Again, as I mentioned before, this is a very familiar passage. This is something that probably for many of us, as we were children, if you grew up in the church, if you've been around the church for any time, this is a passage that you're probably very familiar with. It's the Lord's Prayer. It's something that in many of our churches growing up that we probably recited together as a body, which is a great thing. But one important thing to see about what Jesus is doing here is that he's not just saying, here's what you should pray, as if these are the words that we are to recite. Again, it's a good thing to recite these words, but rather he is saying, as we read in verse 9, this is how we should pray. 
In other words, Jesus is giving us a model of what prayer should look like. This is to shape our prayer, and through shaping our prayers, it's to shape our lives. What is to command our hearts? What are we to be passionate about in the world? Now, one of the things that you notice about the Lord's Prayer is that it has two halves. Do you see that? It has two basic parts. There's a top half and there's a bottom half. The bottom half begins at verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. You see, the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer is primarily focused on us. Now, here's the good news. Jesus teaches us to pray for ourselves and for our family and for our needs. This is a validation of that. Jesus is saying, look, God God wants you to bring everything to Him. He wants you to bring your needs to Him. He wants you to come and confess your sins to Him. He wants you to, to bring absolutely everything you're facing in your life to Him. And That's a beautiful thing. But here's a part of the problem. We tend to live the Christian life exclusively out of the bottom part of the Lord's prayer. That's what shapes our prayers so often. Our prayers so often are exclusively about ourselves and about our needs. And as an implication, we often live the Christian life focused on us. But what we see here is Jesus is teaching us to pray. It doesn't start with us. The whole top of the Lord's prayer is about God. That's a huge implication right there. It's a huge point to just let that sink in. As Jesus says, here's how you're to pray. Start prayer, start your life with God. Just who He is. One of the things we see as we look at the top half of the Lord's prayers, we see as it's about His glory, His name, His kingdom. One of the things that we see right off the bat is even before it gets into asking things, even before it gets into petitions, it just starts with a recognition of who God is. Look at the very first line in the prayer, our Father in heaven. It starts with a realization of who God is. He is our Father. That is an amazing reality. You know, just to let that soak in. You know, that is a unique thing of Christianity. There is no other religion in the world that talks about the creator and the ruler of the universe as father. It's an amazing privilege. Even of believers in the Old Testament, they would just shudder to even imagine that we would call God our father. It's a tremendous reality that he, he knows your name. Just as an earthly father would his child. He knows your needs. He cares for your needs. He is your father. There's so much in there. But I don't think that's primarily where we struggle as we think about God in the Christian life. I don't think primarily we struggle with understanding that God cares for us and is near to us as father. I think where we are more likely to struggle in our culture is to understand God in his greatness. Christian Smith is a sociologist who in 2005 concluded a study of religion in America. 
And it was a vast study, and he was primarily focusing on young people in America. It was a four-year study. And his conclusion, at the end of this study, he wanted to look at what is the dominant religion in America. Now, everybody, of course, would say Christianity, but he's looking a little bit deeper. He's saying, what, what do most people in America really believe about God? What is their functional view of who God is? And here was his description of the baseline understanding of who, God's, who God is in the world. And here's what he called it. Therapeutic, moralistic deism. That was his term for what most people in America, and I would say in the Bible Belt, it's even greater, the view that most people have about God. This is how, what shapes our view of God. Here's how he defines it. God created the world. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and most other religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's why he calls it therapeutic. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when needed to resolve a problem. Can you relate to that in any way? To going through life with the idea that God is primarily distant, that's why it's dualism, as he calls it here, that's why it's called uh, uh, deism. It's the idea that God has created the world and he's kind of set it in motion like a clockworker, but he's largely removed from the world. So the dominant approach to God is the thinking that he, he's out there. He set everything in motion. If I have some problems, if I have some needs, I can go call on him and he'll be interested and he'll come help. But largely, he's removed from my everyday life. And then finally, the fifth hallmark is good people go to heaven when they die. That is the dominant view of God. Another way of putting it is the way that we most naturally think about God is like a granddaddy. You know, I had a granddaddy. He was just crazy about me. I mean, he loved to be with me. And you know, the first thing whenever we get together, you know what he wanted to do? You want to go to the toy store? He loved to just spoil me, and he did. He spoiled me like crazy, and it was wonderful, his love in my life. I think so often, that is the way that we imagine God. Someone who's just so focused upon us and so excited about us and our plans. But yet there's something we don't see here in this very first verse here. Is that God is our Father who is in heaven. That's a huge reality. You know where heaven is? Heaven is the throne room of God. It's His throne. It's where he reigns as king, far and away in Scripture. The way that God is most described and most revealed is as a king, is as a sovereign, is as a ruler. There's a great picture in Isaiah 6. Some of you might be familiar with it, where, where the prophet Isaiah comes into, through a vision, into the heavenly throne room. And it's a very powerful picture. As he comes into the heavenly throne room and describes what he sees, he says, I see the king high and exalted and lifted up. As he comes into heaven, he sees God, the high king, seated upon his throne. And it says the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, a king in the ancient world, his robe was a symbol of his glory, of his majesty. And as Isaiah comes into the heavenly throne room, he says the, the train of God's robe fills the whole temple. 
And there are these mighty angelic creatures before the throne that are before him and constantly attending to and serving the Lord. And they have, they have wings. And with two wings, they're covering their faces. With two wings, they're covering their feet. And with two wings, they're flying. And the picture there is that God is so holy, they will not look upon him. And his presence is so holy that they won't stand in his presence. And yet constantly they are shouting and declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. With absolute joy, they are delighting in the holiness and the majesty of God. That's the picture of our Father in heaven, is that He is our royal Father in heaven. He is the high king. It's hard for us to really get this concept of a king down. You know, we're Americans. We're in a democracy. We don't tolerate kings. If our leaders don't do what we like, then we vote them out. But a king doesn't work that way. And a kingdom doesn't work that way. In a kingdom, the king reigns. And you don't vote for king, you submit to him. So the starting point for life, for prayer, for the Christian life, does not start with us, but it starts with God. With beholding his glory. That it's not about us, it's about him. The high king of heaven. Now from that vision... Of God seated upon his, throne, the, the, upon his throne, the whole rest of the, prayer, uh, of the Lord's Prayer flows. And there are three petitions here in the top half of the Lord's Prayer that flow from this vision of God's majesty and His glory. They're all interrelated. They're all three aspects of the same thing. The first thing that we pray is, Hallowed be your name. Now, Hallowed's kind of an old, archaic name. But to hallow something essentially means to set it apart, to make it holy or recognize it as holy. And name in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures, in the ancient world, your name was a representation of you. It was a representation of your character. So God's name is His reputation. It's who He is. It's the recognition of who He is. And so to pray this, second petition, hallowed be your name, is to pray, Lord, Make your name famous. Would your glory be recognized throughout the earth? Would you be seen as holy? Would would eyes be opened? Would, Would we be able to see the reality of who you are, that there is no one like you? That's the essence of holiness, is to be utterly set apart to be in a league of your own, for there to be nothing that is like you. And that is the essence of God's holiness, is that there is no one like Him. No one else has created all things. No one else knows all things. No one else upholds all things. Only Him in His holiness. And so to pray, hallowed be your name, is to say, Lord, let us see your glory. Let your glory fill the earth. Open our eyes to behold who you are. So there's a question here. How is it that God primarily extends His holiness and and glorifies His name? How does that happen in the world? And that's the next part of the petition. Verse 10, your kingdom come. 
How does God set apart his name as holy in the world? Well, he brings his kingdom. This is a huge concept of the kingdom of God. We've talked about this a good bit, but literally the the entire Bible is summed up with the theme of the coming of God's kingdom into the world. I mean, that is the story of the Bible. From the beginning to the end is the story of God glorifying himself in the earth by bringing his kingdom, his reign. His kingdom is his reign. It's the place where he is recognized as king, where he is submitted to, and all of his ways are embraced. That is his kingdom. And so the story of the Bible is the great story of God bringing his heavenly kingdom into the earth. It's a huge kind of concept. And here Jesus is saying this is the very thing that we are to be praying for. That we're to be seeking. That we're to be longing for. Lord, would you glorify your name? This is about you. Would you glorify your name by bringing your heavenly kingdom into the earth? So there's a question. What does that mean? And we hear that language, the... The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, your kingdom come into the earth. What, what exactly does that look like? And that's exactly what the next phrase explains. Look at the second part of verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So again, what does it mean for God's kingdom to come when we pray that? It means this. We are praying that God's heavenly will would be done on the earth just like it is in heaven. So you see, to understand that, you got to think for a minute. you got to ask a couple questions. So how's God's will done in heaven? You know, think back to Isaiah's vision as he comes into the heavenly throne room. What, what is God's will like in heaven? And now will here is not talking about what we often think about whenever we talk about God's will. We're wanting to know the plan he has for me. You know, like, what job should I take, or you know, who should I marry, or things like that. Well, that's usually not what the Bible is talking about whenever it talks about God's will. It's talking about His desires. What does He want to happen? What kind of people does He want us to be? And He makes it very clear. So how is God's will done in heaven? In heaven, God's will is done perfectly. Every single creature in heaven... Because they behold His glory, they do God's will and carry it out with utter joy. Nobody shows up in heaven and says, you know, this is all right place, but I'd like to change a few things here. You know, I know God's kind of the big deal here, but I think I'd like to kind of do my own thing in here. Nobody in heaven's doing that. Everyone who steps into the heavenly throne room is utterly captured by the King. And it is the joy of every creature in heaven to perform God's will with all of their soul and with all of their heart. That's the significance of heaven. So what's the earth like? How's the earth different? Well, it's completely different, is it not? In the earth, God's will's not embraced. It's ignored. It's thrown off. The earth is the place where humanity, God's creation, we do whatever we want to do. We live for ourselves. We worship created things. We've been made for Him, but we are just so enamored with the things of this world, with reputation and toys and adventures. And we just do whatever we want to do. You know, we got a problem with somebody, well, we just break the relationship. 
All of our relationships, so many of them are fractured. The, the earth is a place of, of war and brokenness and oppression and poverty. It's, as we talked about last, last week, it's not the way it's supposed to be. As we look at the earth and we think about God's will, it's like it's not embraced here. The earth is the place of open rebellion to the king. So do you begin to see how huge this prayer is? You might have been praying this your whole life. You see how radical and revolutionary it is to actually pray, Lord, I want your will like it's done in heaven. I want the way that heaven looks to look like that on the earth. I want your reign in heaven to come down here. I want every single person on the earth to be fully captured with your glory. For everyone to live their lives for you and the service of their neighbor. That the earth would be a place of love. That the earth would be a place of perfect obedience to your ways. That's what it means to pray this. It's huge. Do you know this is actually what Jesus came to bring? Jesus, as he, as he inaugurated his ministry, he called this the gospel of the kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus called this the good news of the kingdom, that finally the kingdom of God has come with him, that he came to bring God's heavenly kingdom down to the earth. Now, often we don't think about it that way. We think that that Jesus' goal was to take us up to heaven. But here's what you got to see. The Lord's prayer is showing us right here, that's not the goal. The goal is not to fly away to heaven. The goal is that one day, Jesus will bring God's kingdom in all of its fullness to the earth. That's a huge vision. And here's the incredible thing. It's going to happen. Jesus said by virtue of his cross, it will happen. When he returns in glory, all of these promises will come to fruition. In the vision of the prophet Isaiah, he says the The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas. What a poetic way to put it. How how does the water cover the seas? Well, it's one and the same. It's absolute saturation. That's what Isaiah is talking about. When Messiah, King Jesus, comes in all of His fullness, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. A massive vision. Do you see it? We've probably been praying this all of our life. So what's the implication for us? The implication for us is to ask this question. What would it look like in Dade County if God's will were done just like it is in heaven? You see, the the promise of the kingdom is that this is going to happen here. Not just here in Dade County, throughout the world. It's a global vision. But here's what our calling is as believers. It's to take a global vision and make it local to where He has put you. So that's the work. The work that we're called to do. To look at the place where He's put us. Our workplace, our neighborhoods, our community. And to keep asking this question. If God's heavenly will were done with absolute joy in Dade County, what would that look like? And that's what we pray for. And that's what we seek. 
Because the promise of the gospel is that, is that by virtue of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, that is going to happen here. That's huge. So what's our calling? Believe it. In the face of everything that kind of points to the contrary. I mean, our everyday reality, it doesn't look like that. It's hard. We, we see resistance to that. We see brokenness. We see struggle. We sit in our own lives. You see, that's what it means to believe the gospel. Is to believe, wait a minute. Jesus has done something in space and time. And because of what he's done, everything here is going to be changed. One day in all of its fullness, Jesus will make all things new. Here. Me, my body, my community, all things. So as we believe that, as we embrace that, as we imagine it, part of what we got to do is let your imagination go with it. Let yourself imagine. What would it look like? What is it going to look like when His Heavenly will is fully embraced here. When every single person is filled with joy and delight over His glory. What will it look like? What will relationships be like? What will our schools look like? What will leaders in our government look like? Imagine that. What would it be like? What would our neighborhoods look like? You know, we've got to work it out. But whenever this becomes our hope, when we really believe this is going to happen, it really changes everything. What does it do? It gives you purpose in everything that you're doing. In the everyday mundane realities of your life, it gives immense purpose to that. You see, because you know this is the place that God's kingdom's coming. This matters. My work matters. My home, my relationship with my neighbors This community, it matters because it's the scope of the coming of God's kingdom. It also gives you tremendous hope. It doesn't matter how bleak or how dark the circumstances you find yourself in. It doesn't matter. Because the promise of the gospel is that He is bringing about renewal even in this place. So it gives enormous hope no matter what you're facing. See, we've got to work out the implications of that into our life. And most importantly of all, it's not up to us. He calls us to pray for it. We cannot build God's kingdom. I don't know if you've ever tried to change somebody's heart. I've done it a lot. And I have yet to find the first success. I can't change anybody. I can't change myself. It's freeing once we get there. I'm still trying to get there. right? It's so freeing when you get to the place of saying, wait a minute. He's the one who's bringing his kingdom, not me. And so when you get that, you realize, oh yeah, my job is to pray. Pray, Prayer is a way of saying, you know, I can't do this. You say it's coming. I want it to happen. I'm called to, to bear witness to it, but really, only you can do this. So this is to be what we pray continually for. That not just the things that I need in my life, but God, would you bring your kingdom in all of its fullness in this place? Let me close with this. Just a little story. I've shared this before, but once upon a time, there was this little eight-year-old boy, and he noticed very near to his home, he lives in this, 
in this city. And he, he noticed near his home there were three men who were working. They were bricklayers. And they were laying brick. And he's a curious little boy. And he comes over and he's wanting to ask a question. He's kind of watching them. And he notices that the three bricklayers are doing their work very, very differently. He notices the first guy, he's sitting there, and he's just miserable. It's like drudgery. I mean, he's just, he's just counting the hours. He's hating life. And he's laying the bricks, and he's kind of, you know, mumbling some stuff under his breath. And the little boy's wondering, well, what's, what's he doing? He walks up, and he says, Mr., Mr., what are you doing? And he said, kid, can't you see? I'm laying bricks. Get out of here and leave me alone. The boy thought, my goodness, I sure don't want to be a bricklayer whenever I grow up. But then he noticed one of the other ones was a little bit different. I mean, he was going up, laying his brick, and he was kind of in, you know, get-her-done mode, and he, he didn't have a frown on his face. He didn't look like he was miserable or anything, but he's just kind of in the zone. And the little boy comes up to him, and he says, Hey, Mr. Mister, what are you doing? He said, Well, I'm doing my job. I'm providing for my family. You know, I come to work, and this is what I do, so being faithful to my job. And the boy said, huh, well, that's a little bit different. But then he noticed the third bricklayer. And this guy's attitude was totally different. He's laying bricks. There's a joy in him. There's a sense of purpose. He's almost whistling while he's going along. And the boy just couldn't resist. And he comes up to him and he said, Mr. Mr., what are you doing? And he stops and he turns and he looks at the boy and he says, Son, I'm building a city. And the little boy says, wow, I want to build a city too. You see, all the bricklayers were doing the same job. But what makes all the difference in the world? Their vision of what their work is a part of. You see, the vision of the kingdom of God, when we really believe this is going to happen, it changes everything. It changes everything about your work, about your relationships, even the incredibly painful circumstances you're facing in your life or your family. When you see this is a part of a much larger story. And it cannot fail. It changes everything about your reality.